Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Praise the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Because the Lord our God is holy. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. speaks to us of God, but not just any God, not a God of our invention, not a God of our imagination, not a God of our preferences, not a God of our 21st century American values. Yes, the Bible speaks to us of God, but of a very specific one. One God, eternal in nature, in existing in three distinct but inseparable persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus. 
and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods. One God. One mind. One heart. One will. Unified in purpose. Existing forever in one divine community. Or if you will, perhaps one divine family. And the Bible speaks to us of the family of God as well. Not only does it give us a clear picture that God himself is a divine community, a divine family, but that we human beings made in his image are invited to be a part of that family. We are invited to participate in the very life and heart and mind and will of God. We are invited to know and relate with God. We are invited to be saved and live forever with God. And so we have chosen to devote all of 2020 to understanding God's will and His word for His church family. So we have chosen the word family as our theme word for this year. And because of this, we're embarking on three important series during the first half of this year. And in these series, we will get to know and understand what the Bible has to say about these three important family members that we call God. And this morning, we're starting off a four-week series called The Father. The Father. And our goal with this series is to dig into four very specific things about God the Father as they are taught in Scripture. Next week, we'll discover what the Bible teaches us about God's justice. In the third week of the series, we'll discuss at length God's wrath. In other words, His punishment for sin and evil and why that's actually a good thing. And we'll finish the series off with a clear description of what the Bible teaches us about God's love. But it should be obvious by the scriptures that we heard this morning, we're about to dive headlong into what the Bible teaches us about the holiness, the holiness of God. If you've ever read the Bible for any length of time or you've been in church before, you've probably heard that word holy. But for some of us, that's, it's kind of a difficult concept to grasp. It's not a word that we use very often. It's not a word that can really ever be said too often about any of us. And so the reality is, it's not something that we understand at great detail. But our hope today will be to clarify and demystify that term a bit. And give us a very clear sense of what God's holiness is and how we are called to respond to it. During this series, we're going to be using 1 Corinthians 8, 6 as our focus verse. It's going to come up on the screen, so what I want you guys to do is recite it with me. Here we go. We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for Him. See, the Apostle Paul, who authored this verse, says that there is only one God, and then he references specifically the Father, who he indicates created everything. And our existence is for him. 
I want you to think about that just for a moment. The Bible tells us very clearly that God created everything. In other words, he created you. He says in, in Psalm 139 that he knit us together at our conception and he created every single one of us for a relationship with him that is the purpose for which we were created. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go into a, a story out of the Old Testament that will help us consider what the Bible means when it talks about the holiness of God. So we're gonna, what we're going to be working out of this morning is in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And in that book, we meet a dominating figure that will, will, will continue to dominate for the next several books, a man by the name of Moses. Moses was born as a Hebrew, a Jew. He was born to Hebrew slaves in Egypt. But by circumstances orchestrated by the hand of God, he grew up in the home of the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh. But ultimately, Moses had to flee from Egypt in fear of his life. After one day, he left the palace to go out and view the land, and in the process, witnessed an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave. And for whatever reason, his anger swelled and he killed the man where he stood. He ended up leaving the country for fear of the king, and he ran off to an out-of-the-way place called Midian, where he married a woman named Zipporah, and he settled down to be a mind-his-own-business shepherd out in the middle of the desert. But God had different plans. The plan for Moses was to return to Egypt and bring the Hebrew people out of slavery. And the story that we're going to discuss this morning is the very first conversation between God and Moses. Let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. So so he had married Zipporah. Her dad was this guy named Jethro. He was a priest in Midian, but he was also a a fairly wealthy um, flocks owner. And so he, Moses, became Jethro's shepherd. And he was was driving the flocks to the far side of the wilderness, assuming, uh, we we, we should assume that he was driving them to, to find pasture, right? And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God, And it goes on to say that there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Now let's just stop and and kind of take in this scene for a moment. Moses is walking along. He's in the desert. And all of a sudden appears to his side a bush that's on fire. Now, this might not have been the most shocking thing in the world. It's an arid climate. It's a dry place. So if the conditions were right, it, was not, it wouldn't have been weird to see something on fire. But Moses is walking along, and he's driving the sheep, and he sees this bush that's on fire. And, and, and one, one would assume that maybe his most important uh, thought at first was, well, let's just keep the sheep away from the fire, because we all know sheep are kind of dumb, right? So, so he's walking them along, and he's kind of taking stock of the fire, and he's looking at it, and all of a sudden he's like, 
What's going on? And he takes a closer look and he realizes that even though the thing is on fire, there's no question it's on fire. He sees the flames, he feels the flames, it's hot, and like he can tell, but all of a sudden he notices the thing's not burning up. No embers flying around, no sparks going everywhere, no branch just falling off. It's on fire, but it's not burning. Well, this is kind of strange. So Moses, unable to control himself, goes, I'm going to check this thing out. So he walks over. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why? The bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but this is kind of freaky, right? So you're walking along, you're driving some sheep, you don't exactly expect to hear a voice. And all of a sudden, he's, he's, hearing, he's hearing this voice, and he's like, what's going on? He's like, maybe one of the other shepherds trying to sneak up on me. What's going on? All of a sudden, he realizes, voice is coming from the bush. <laughs> what? <laughs> the, vo- the voice is coming from the bush. And he does what any sane person would do. <laughs> he goes, ah... Uh, here I am. <laughs> I think the Bible's awesome, right? Here he is, like, ah, uh, that, that's me. Here I am. He, he responds. And then the voice says something to him that might surprise us. And God said to him, Moses, don't come any closer. Hmm? Right, you've been in church a while, right? You've heard that God is love, right? Why would he tell somebody not to come close? Why would he say, stay back? Don't get too close. And then he gives him this really weird command, right? Moses, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And, and if you're anything like me, you're looking at this, this, this section of scripture and going, why, why do you make him take his shoes off? It's kind of weird. Right? Now this week I went, I went through a number of different scholarly opinions. I read a whole bunch of stuff about, okay, why did God make Moses take his shoes off? Right? And I heard some really interesting things. I read some stuff from some Jewish scholars and rabbis. I read some stuff from Christian pastors and, and scholars and it, it, some fascinating thoughts out there. Some people believe that, that it was simply because God told him to. There's no real explanation. You don't really need one. If God tells you to do something, you just do it and that's it. Some people, that this, I mean, this one is funny, actually, to me. I read, I read one. I thought this was fascinating. Um, God made him take his shoes off because some of the holy dust from the ground that Moses was standing on could have gotten on his shoes and he could have transported holy dust to unholy places. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. There was a scholar out there that, that said this. Um, another one that I think is probably a, a little bit of a better interpretation, um, more likely interpretation, is that it was customary in that day, at that time, in that culture, for one to remove one's shoes as a sign of respect if, if you stepped into the presence of like a king or a deity, right? 
Similarly, you know, to how, how guys used to take, take their hats off if a girl walked in the room kind of thing, or it's like almost a, sh- a sign of respect type thing, that's, that's, that's what they think this was. But here's the deal. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason it might have been, there's a reason he asked him to do it, and it wasn't necessarily because of dust or maybe even so much because God just said so. The reality is what made that place holy is who was there. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God. Circle that phrase. I am the God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. Simply put, God was there. The God, God the creator, God the father, God the author of life. And where he is, holiness is there too. Let's be clear. The ground itself wasn't holy. It was holy because it was who was present on it? The next day, this spot on the mountain isn't any different than any other spot on the mountain. The next day, this bush isn't any different than any other bush on the mountain. It was holy on this day at this time because of who was present. And notice Moses' reaction. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Something about the power and the glory and the holiness of God was just way too much for Moses to take in. In fact, God acknowledges this reality 30 chapters later in Exodus, chapter 33, verse 20, where he said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live Guys, these passages for us open up two important categories of discussion today. It opens up first and foremost the question, what is God's holiness? How do we define it? How do we understand it? But secondly, it opens up the second question, which is this, how should we respond to it? So that's what we're going to spend our day doing. Let's start this morning by defining God's holiness so what does holiness mean? In the, in the passage, the, Moses, take off your shoes, you are standing on holy ground. That's a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word there, translated holy, is the word kodesh. Kodesh. And what it literally means is apartness, apartness, or sacredness. All right? So, so let me give you an example. From the passage, right, you've got God calling the ground holy. What made that ground apart or separate or sacred at that particular moment? It was because it was connected with God. God was there. So the ground or the area around the burning bush took on a sacred importance because something sacred was manifested there. That is God. God was on the ground. God was speaking through that bush, and it made everything around it holy, apart, different, separate, sacred. 
You see, this ground, at least for the moment, was different than any other ground in the world. Because at that moment, God had shown up. It was connected with God. Right? When you think about that word, Kodesh, it means apartness or sacredness. Something that is holy is set apart or sacred or different or separate from that which is not holy. You might, you might write this phrase in, your, in, the, in, in the notes on the side there. You might write the phrase, just different. Write the phrase, just different. Because that's what holiness means. It's just different than everything else. Different in value, different in beauty, different in importance. So when we think of that word holiness, it has a, both a general meaning, okay? Follow me here, we're going to get into a little theology, all right? Holiness has a general meaning, a general definition, and then it has a specific meaning and a specific definition. Let's talk about the general one first. Holiness, by this definition, apartness or sacredness, holiness is everything that makes God different than us. Everything that makes God different than us. I found this awesome quote by this well-known pastor named Sam Storms. And he's talking about the holiness of God. And I think, I think he's got something to say to us this morning. So I just quoted him here, right? He said, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity. Now hang on to that idea of moral purity. We're going to get there in just a second, okay? So he's saying the holiness of God only kind of secondarily refers to moral purity. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. He's just different. To say that God is holy is to say, sorry for the big long word, he is transcendentally separate. In other words, he transcends, he goes beyond, he is totally different than anything else in the universe. There is nothing else like him. He is holy in a unique category, all his own. No one is like God. Nothing is like God. He is separate, he is different. That's what holiness means. He says holiness is not one attribute of God. In other words, it's not like God's power or grace or knowledge or wrath. It's not, a, it's not a, an aspect of God that we can kind of point at and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah this, this, this is God displaying knowledge, and this is God displaying kindness, and this is God displaying love. No, everything about God is holy. Holiness is his definition. Each attribute partakes of the divine holiness. There are times in scripture where you will, you will see, I am the Lord, holy is my name. There are plenty of scriptures where God calls himself holy. He is taking on a definition. This is who he is. It's not a part of him. It is him. Right? So in this general category of holiness, we can lump everything that makes us different than God and God different than us. For example, think about God's nature, right? God is spirit. We have bodies. That's different. He is separate. He is different than us because he is spirit. We have a body. God exists outside of space and time, right? He is not held to the bounds of time. That's why he is infinite, right? We live in space and time, and we cannot separate ourselves from them. 
God has infinite power and life. God has never been sick. God is never going to die. God is never going to lose power. He's never going to get weak. We will do all of those things. You see, holiness in a general way is everything that makes God substantively different than us. But as I mentioned, there's not just a general definition. There's also a specific definition of what holiness means in the Bible. And here it is. Holiness is two things. God's absolute sinless perfection, right? So it's God's absolute sinless perfection. I told you we're going to come back to purity, so here it is. And it's freedom from the potential of moral evil. So let me, let me pull these apart a little bit because there's kind of two sections of this and I want to I be really clear. When I say that God is absolutely behaviorally, morally, sinlessly perfect, here's what I mean. Look at what Deuteronomy 32.4 says about God. It says this. Um, it says, he is the rock. Circle that word. He's, he is the rock, right? In the Bible, a rock is a symbol of something that is sturdy, it is strong, and it doesn't change. It's always the same. It doesn't move. It doesn't shift. It's always what it is, okay? Which is a perfect example, a perfect image for God because it reminds us that he doesn't change. So it says, he is the rock, and then it goes on. It says, he, all his works are perfect. Circle that word. His works are perfect. So whenever God does anything, it is the right thing. Think about that. All his works are perfect. Whenever he does anything, he does the right thing. He never sins. It goes on to say, all his ways are, circle this word, just. All his ways are just. So when God judges and punishes somebody, it was the right thing to do. When God blesses and encourages someone, it was the right thing to do. God's blessings and encouragements, his judgments and punishments are all right. It goes on, a faithful God. He is a faithful God. Circle that word, faithful. Who does no wrong, circle this word, upright upright and just is he. So whenever God speaks, he says the right things. Whenever God does anything, it is the right thing. God is absolutely, at all times, in every way, behaviorally perfect. Even if, and this is important, even if he doesn't do what we would have done. When we look at what we think should happen and God doesn't do it, our assumption should be he is right because he is holy. But let's take a look at the second half of that definition, okay? So he's behaviorally, morally perfect, right? But the second half of that phrase is that God is totally and completely free from even the potential of moral evil. Now, I can't help it, all right? We've got to get a little philosophical here, so just follow me, all right? We see this in several places in Scripture. Number one, Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. It is absolutely impossible for someone who is the truth to tell a lie. He cannot lie. It's impossible for that which is untrue to escape the lips of God. 
James 1.13 says, when tempted, and he's, he's writing to other people, so he's saying, whenever you're tempted to do the wrong thing, whenever you feel that thought inside your head or that craving inside your heart to do the wrong thing, whenever you feel that, nobody should ever say, God's doing that to me. No one should ever say, God is tempting me, because God does not get tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is completely and wholly separate from evil in every possible way and as such cannot tempt you and will not tempt you. All right? It's impossible for God to sin because the very definition of good comes from him. Okay, now this is, like I said, this is where we're going to get a little philosophical. Think about it. When you want to be better at life, so think about yourself. Maybe it's New, it's New Year's time, right? So we're all thinking about our resolutions. Most of us have probably scrapped half of them already, all right? It's, what is the 19th? Yeah, I mean, those are a week old at this point. Um, but think about it. You, you want to make your life better, right? And so you set for yourself a standard of goodness that is above you now, right? Nobody's trying to get better at the things that they're already good at, right? They're already, we're trying to get better at the things we're not good at, right? So we're shooting at... We're shooting at a standard that's above us, and we are trying to live up to that standard, right? That's not how it works with God. God is the standard. At no point in history has there been a a standard bigger than God, and God just happened to be perfectly living up to it. That's not how it works. God is the standard of whatever is good and right and true, and all of us are trying to shoot for that. Does that make sense? Right? It's not that God has just managed to be perfect at a standard that's above him. He himself is the standard of everything that is good and right and true. So he doesn't have to work to be good. He just is good. He doesn't have to work to tell the truth. He just does tell the truth. Okay? It's, it, he's the standard by which everything else is measured as either good or evil, true or false. So that's what it means when the Bible says that God is holy. He's not only wholly different than us. He's not only wholly morally perfect. He's not in he's he's also free from even the potential of moral evil. But that's not all this story tells us. The story just doesn't tell us what the holiness of God is. It also points to some insights into how we can respond to God's holiness and how we're called to respond to God's holiness. Let's look back at the stories we're reading it. God says to Moses, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses' immediate response is to cover his face. He covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Why? He hid his face not because that burning bush was so bright. He was afraid to look at God because he recognized he was nothing like the God he was looking at. Right? 
He hid his face from God because he recognized his complete and total unworthiness to be in the presence of a sinless, perfect being. So he covered his face and said, no, I can't look at this because you're too much. You're too perfect. You're too good for me, and I don't deserve to be here. You know, as I thought about that this week, I reflected on this, and and I've Moses, I think, is just one of the potential ranges of responses that people have to God. When you and I bump into the holiness of God, or maybe we're reading the Bible and we read about how perfect and holy God is, or, or, or we hear a pastor stand up on a stage and talk about the perfect holiness of God, we, we tend to have one of kind of three responses, I think, to God. They're kind of a range, a spectrum, if you will. And on the one side... I think some people, when they, when they bump up against the holiness of God or they consider the holiness and the perfection of God, their immediate reaction is to become demotivated from holiness. Their immediate reaction is to go, well, I can't be, I, I can't be like that. I mean, I can't be that perfect. I can't be that good. You've got to be kidding me. Okay, so, so God is perfect and holy, and I'm, I can't act like that. They become demotivated from holiness. And I think the end result of that tends to be, sorry for the big word, I needed an ism word, okay? So, so I, think, I think the result is hedonism, all right, hedonism. And what hedonism means, all right, quite simply, is that we ignore the holiness of God and choose not to pursue holiness in our own lives. No, we basically do whatever we want because we want to when we want to. But that's, what hedon, that's, the, that's the basic definition of hedonism. I just do what I want when I want. Right? Because I know I can't be perfect. I know I can't live up to God. So I just kind of mail it in and say, nah. <laughs> nope. Can't do that. So might as well quit. Do me, my way, and my time. And we'll just let that God stuff go. Some of us have been there. Right? Some of us have done this, probably all of us at some point or another. But from a biblical perspective, this is a faulty path to take. The Apostle Paul addressed it in his letter to the Romans when he was talking about the grace of Christ. Now, any of you that have been in church a long time, you've probably heard this before, but, what you, but you know that being saved, right, being saved by God means that God overlooks the sinfulness and the unholiness of our behavior by accepting the perfect and holy sacrifice of Jesus for us on the cross. Right? In other words, we are saved from our sinfulness because Jesus was perfect and chose to offer himself up on the cross as a replacement for us, a substitute. This is what the Bible calls grace. You and I don't get what we deserve because Jesus stepped in and took it in our place. It's what the Bible calls grace. So look at what the Apostle Paul says. He's basically answering the hedonistic objection. Well, hey, I mean, if it's, if it's about grace, right? I mean, why shouldn't I just sin a bunch so that God's grace can be glorified even more? He says, no. He says, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. By no means, he says. He says, we are those who have died to sin because we understand that there is somebody who died in our place. And so as a response, out of love for this person who got themselves killed on our behalf, we choose to walk away from a life of sin. 
We choose to turn. The Bible uses the word repent and walk away from it. You see, he's, he's responding to that hedonistic objection, that demotivated person who says, well, if I just sin, grace will cover it, so no big deal. He says, because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we die to sin and reject it. We cannot be demotivated from chasing the holiness of God by the holiness of God. But there's a second response that I think a lot of people fall into, especially a lot of Christian people, right? And that's the perspective of those who are motivated toward holiness by human effort. No, no, I'm not going to reject the holiness of God. I'm going to try to be the holiness of God on my own. I'm going to try to work and, and, and take the time and take the effort to make myself perfect. We figure that with just enough time and just enough effort, just enough work, that we can be good enough to earn the salvation of God. It's a perspective that when you boil it all down is nothing more than human perfectionism. It's perfectionism. But here's the problem. If you're honest with yourself, we all know that none of us have been perfect. We all know that none of us are perfect now. And for darn sure, we're pretty, pretty certain we're not going to be perfect in the future either. Try as we might, we can't achieve perfection. And furthermore, even if we try to be as holy as possible, the Bible is clear. People don't get into heaven because they're good people who do good things. <laughs> Nobody ever made it into heaven because they did enough good stuff. It's just not how it works. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. He says, for it is by grace. This is Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved. In other words, you didn't earn it. God gave it to you because of what Jesus did on your behalf. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Circle that phrase. Not by works so that no one can boast You see, our good works, our trying to be holy and perfect on our own power will never measure up. So perfectionism is, for all intents and purposes, a really bad way of trying to be holy. And when you think about it, there's a troubling reality about both of these perspectives. When you dig a little deeper, they're both just excuses to make the focus ourselves. Think about it. In both of these perspectives, the focus is us, right? In hedonism, hey, I'm going to just do what I want when I want, because I want. Focus is right here, right? Perfectionism, I'm going to try to be the very best person that I can possibly be so that God will see it and he will reward me. Focus is on ourselves. But guys, here's the truth. There's a third way. There's a third way. And I believe that it's the way Moses responded to God. And the way that all of us are called to respond to God. And that's this. He was motivated toward holiness, not away from it. He was motivated toward holiness by an awareness of his sin. 
He was motivated toward holiness by an awareness of his sin. When you think about it, his immediate first response to being in the presence of God was to cover his face and be afraid to look at God. He knew he didn't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God because he was a sinner. But notice his response. He stayed right there. He covered his face. He said, I don't deserve to be here, but he stayed right there. And he allowed God to point out all the flaws. If you read the rest of the conversation, man, it's beautiful. Because he points out some of Moses' flaws. And he unveils some of Moses' weaknesses. And he deals with some of Moses' reluctance to do what God wants him to do. But Moses stood right there and he allowed God to change him. You see, this third way could easily be described as godliness. As opposed to hedonism where I chase what I want. Or perfectionism where I try to be as perfect as possible so that God will reward me. Instead, I just choose godliness. I try to be as much like God as I can possibly be, knowing that I will fail, knowing that I will have flaws, knowing that I will not be perfect, but instead recognizing the perfection of the God that I am seeking and practically trying to allow him to make me as holy as I can be. In a practical way, godliness looks like this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says, let us purify ourselves. Purify ourselves. In other words, clean ourselves up. Like, clean ourselves off. From what? He goes on. From everything that contaminates body and spirit. So every sin, every evil thought, every mean word, every sinful behavior. We actively try to allow God to scrub from our lives everything that separates us from him, and that gunks up our life with evil. And why? Why do we do that? The verse answers, perfecting holiness out of, circle this phrase, reverence for God. It's got nothing to do with chasing a reward for ourselves. It's everything to do with seeking to be like God because we love God, and we recognize what Jesus has done for us, and we want to be more like him. It's reverence. It's an understanding of who God is and what he has called us to, and and the the sacrifice that he made on our behalf that, that drives us to scrub our lives clean of the sins and the failures. We do it because we love God so much, and we are so grateful for what he has done. You see, it's our reverence for Christ and our desire to be like him that drove the author of Hebrews to write this. He said, make every effort, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now we understand, as I said before, let's let's backtrack here. We are saved by our faith and not by our good works. We are saved by our faith, but the, notice this, all right? The only kind of faith that saves is a faith that drives us to pursue holiness and a godly lifestyle. Right? If we say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but our life shows no change. No change at all. 
No desire for holiness, no deep love for Christ that that makes us want to be different. The Bible puts us on really shaky ground whether we have the kind of faith that saves us at all. Right? The only response to God's holiness that actually focuses on God is godliness. This is the only one that actually focuses on God. It's the only one that puts him at the center. It's the only one that makes him the one that matters most. To be motivated toward a life of holiness, not because we can get something out of it, but because the one who has called us into a life of holiness has been so good to us. That is how we pursue holiness and do respect to the holiness of God. As as we close this morning, I want to offer you some possible ideas for how you can help yourself pursue holiness in a, in a greater way this week. There on the bottom of your outline is a box that just says next steps in it. And I've highlighted three things that I really want you to consider. All right, three things that, that I think could help you be a person who is pursuing holiness. All right? First and foremost, the reality is, guys, the only place in the world where we can know more about and understand the God who says he is holy is to be in his holy word. If we are people who say we are people of faith, but we are not taking advantage of reading the scriptures on a daily basis. We are missing out on a developmental process that will help us not only understand the holiness of God, but be more holy and like him ourselves. So there's a number of options there. I'm not going to read them, but you have an opportunity to chase holiness this week by being a person who is in God's word. There are a number of reading plans available to you. There are a number of ways you can access them. Read that box and take advantage of getting into the word of God on a daily basis. The second thing is, men, if you're in the room, there's an opportunity for you in the coming weeks. It's the Men's No Regrets Conference. It's an all-day event where we spend time doing what we just did, learning about God, hearing about him, and, and being challenged to live our lives in a way that is holy with our wives and with our children and with our families and in our workplaces, etc. All right, this is, a, this is an opportunity for you to challenge yourself to grow in holiness by putting yourself in front of good Bible-centered teaching that will challenge you to be the man that God has called you to be. I want to encourage you to take that step. There's a couple ways you can sign up. You can go online to that website or you can head out to the atrium. On the other side of the atrium is a table where you can sign up for that. It's 20 bucks. That gets you food. That gets you um, great teaching and worship all day long. It's going to be a totally fun thing. I would encourage you to come. Finally, every Christian needs other Christians to help them grow. And if you're a person in this room and maybe you've been coming for a while, or maybe you're just checking out faith, and you want to know what it's like to to really pursue holiness, one of the best ways you can do that is to get in a life group. 
being around other Christians who are going to challenge you to be the people that God has called you to be. They're not going to let you slip. They're not going to let you quit. They're not going to let you walk away. They're going to challenge you to be in the word. They're going to challenge you to be people who are pursuing holiness with God. All right? I want you to, I want you to check that out. There, there are a number of ways you can sign up for that. On, on your Connect card on the back, there's a box that said, I want to learn more about life groups. Right? We have like 22 of them or, or, or somewhere in that vicinity, life groups that are currently operating right now that you can get connect, connected with. And I just want to encourage you to check those out and maybe, maybe write that, that Connect card out and get, get involved with a life group. All right? Guys, we're going to pray and we're going we're gonna to close with another song about the goodness of God. But I just want to—I just want to challenge you this morning. If we want to respect the holiness of the God that the Bible says is holy, the best way to do that is to love Him enough to chase being like Him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the fact that we get to be in the presence of a holy God when we come here. Your word promises that you you fellowship with those. You come to be with those who are worshiping you. And Father, we believe that. We believe that your spirit is with us. We believe that you are present. We believe that you are hearing our worship. And Father, we want that worship to be honorable to you. We want our lives to serve you. We want to be the kind of people who respond to your holiness by seeking to be holy ourselves. Father, I pray for your help because all of us are weak, all of us are flawed, all of us will fall short. But we know, Father, the perfection of the God we are chasing, the holiness of the God that we serve. And I pray that we will be the kind of people that stand in your presence, seeking you for nothing more than just you, and allow you to change us and make us more holy as you are holy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.